Welcome to the Veterinarian Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Today, I am joined by Debbie Boone. And Debbie has an extremely long bio, as we were just joking from before. But if you don't know Debbie, Debbie has a litany of experience in vet med of over 25 years. She is a certified veterinary practice manager. She's fear-free certified. She's the president at Two Manage Vets Consulting Service. She's done a ton of work for vet partners, which is how I got to know Debbie and I felt like I knew her before she even knew who I was, but I'm super appreciative of her efforts there. And she does a ton of speaking within VetMed as well. So for a lot of you, it might be a familiar name. And with that, Debbie, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, I appreciate it. It got off to a little buffy start. We had some technology glitches, but hey, that's all right. Good old Zoom always comes through. Absolutely. And yeah, for those listening, Debbie's patience is also something that is fantastic. So, you know, kudos there. (laughs) It's a good thing that I wasn't across the room trying to plug something in because I'd be like, oh, come on. But with that, Debbie, I shared that we were going to chat in the Facebook group and I got a lot of really great responses. I want to get into some of those questions. But for those that do not know who you are, just to kind of set the stage, give a kind of high level overview of who you are, what you do, and you can make it as short and sweet or as long as you want. That's the beauty of this podcast, but just tell everyone who you are. Oh, sure. Well, I'd I'd much rather answer the questions. That's much more interesting than this, but I am a veterinary practice management consultant. I focus a lot on communication within veterinary teams, client communication, customer service, building great cultures in hospitals. I've always had the mantra that if you get the people right, the money shows up. And so I spend my career teaching that. I managed hospitals for 23 years and everything from, well, a two doctor that grew to five and three different locations. And the last one I managed had 11 veterinarians. was open 24 hours a day, especially even did managed the shelter, and we had a mixed animal practice. So I had a hand in the pie of almost everything except maybe food animal. There's a lot of food animal background for me, but I have a degree in animal science. I was one of those kids, always wanted to be a veterinarian. And I grew up in the family restaurant business where I learned hospitality and customer service. So as a career, I kind of squished those two things together in management and the people business of veterinary medicine and have made that my career. Awesome. Yeah, that is a great overview and I appreciate it. And for anyone listening, yes, I do have a cold. My voice does sound like I'm probably underwater. So it's a good thing that Debbie's going to do most of the talking. So what I want to do is I'm going to jump right into the questions. And again, I appreciate those that shared them, but the first one I'm going to try to shorten down as much as possible because it's fairly lengthy, but it was basically asking, how do you get through the older generation of a veterinarian that currently owns a practice that does not believe in change or technology because they've always done it this way, or my clients won't pay for that, or they don't want this service? And is it a lost cause? Is that a dead business? Or is there a way that it could be turned around? Or is it better just to go and do a startup? And I know that is such a loaded question, but (laughs) again, with your experience and dealing with so many different situations like this, what can you share? Let's just take it a piece at a time. Let's talk about change implementation. The very first talk I ever gave was on change implementation. And in order to get people to change, they have to want to. You cannot push a rope. So what makes people want to change? Well, there's got to be benefit in it to them. And the best way I know to get people to implement changes is to show them the benefit, the what's in it for me. 
uh, aspect of it. And then to make it as easy as possible to have a lot of support behind it. So if you have an older veterinarian, I know the still using paper index cards, no technology in the hospital. It's, it's shocking, but it's still out there. Sometimes they're at the point in their career where they're saying, why should I bother to change now? I'm walking out the door. And those people probably won't change. It's not worth the pain, the effort to make those changes because you have to understand what makes us do the things that we do are neuropathways. We create habits and these pathways are comfortable. Probably some of these veterinarians could walk their head through a spay without ever seeing the animal. They know the body movements are there where they're going to reach for stuff. So it's so ingrained in their brain that they don't think about it. Sort of like driving to work and showing up and looking around going, wow, how the hell did I get here, right? (laughs) You don't remember anything about it. So that's really the hurdle to change is to know that you have these neuropathways that are there and to realize that your mind is going to constantly keep pulling you back into old patterns. If you do decide that change is something you're interested in and you want to implement a new skill or a new technique or create a new habit, the easiest way I have found is to have it be a team effort where everybody on the team knows what you're trying to do and they are all there to help hold you accountable and to help remind you that you wanted to make the change and to help the process become easier. So if I wanted to change a pain protocol. So old school vets go, we don't worry about pain management in animals for spays or neuter. Those cat neuters, yeah, they're fine. Well, then maybe they say, okay, maybe there's an advantage to this. Maybe the clients would feel better about leaving their animals here. Maybe their clients, if I educate the clients about them, the clients would say, yeah, I don't want my pet to be in pain. So how do I change the habit? Well, you have your technical team just prep the drugs beforehand. You are reminding the veterinarian now, remember you wanted to change, you wanted to change this. So making it somebody else's idea is always the best idea too. If I say, you know, I want you to change this habit, our mental barrier starts to come up and go, why should I change it? You know, I don't want to change it. I like the way I am. But if I say you wanted to change this, so I'm going to help you because you asked me to help you. Then I'm going, yeah, you're right. I did want to change that. And so there's a much more likelihood that. Now, if you are talking about purchasing a practice and having an older veterinarian still work there, have this conversation. And I like to get everything out on the table because this is how partnerships fail. We don't set the rules before the game starts to get played. And we're in the middle of the game and we want to change the rules. Or we thought the rules were A and somebody else thought the rules were B. And then we get into a mess. So having clear expectations before you get into a partnership like this or a buyout where the older veterinarian or the previous owner is going to work there is incredibly important. That being said, if you want to start up with something new, if you are going to go into a partnership with somebody else, the same rules apply. Figure out what the rules are going to be, who's going to do certain things beforehand, And then have clear expectations of those and hold each other accountable for those things. It's always nice to start with a clean slate. It's just like building a new building. You're walking in and there's no clutter and you can put everything where it's supposed to be. And that's lovely, but it's not always practical. So you're going to have to make the decision as to, do you want to try to get and help someone change? Or do you want to say, that's just too much effort. I'll just go start my own thing. 
I love it. And then with the conversation between that associate, maybe wanting to be an owner versus the older established owner, do you have any suggestions, guidance for those conversations to kind of lead it? Because sometimes it can be the blind leading the blind if they both don't know what's what's going to happen, how to have that conversation to make sure, hey, my cards are on the table, their cards are on the table. At least we can be honest and open. And it's not always a bad thing if they say, hey, this isn't going to work. It'll save a lot of money and heartache, most likely. You know, having an advisor, so many times veterinarians think that they can because they're so smart. They're just the most intelligent group of people. But that doesn't mean you are an expert on everything. And having an advisor who understands partnerships, who understands veterinary medicine, I often see veterinarians who are interested in partnerships get an attorney involved, but only after they've kind of figured this thing out. And then there's a lot of backtracking. So I think the best time to talk to a counselor about this is beforehand and find somebody who is veterinary specific. You and I are both members of vet partners and we have several veterinary specific attorneys that are in our group. And the reason I think this is important is because veterinary medicine has a unique set of challenges when you're talking about contracts. And if you don't get somebody who understands that, and some attorneys will say, oh, it's all business, it's all contracts. No, it's not. This is people who can steal your medical records, who can steal your client base, who can basically undermine your practice if they don't follow standard behavior protocols. So getting those things up front and having somebody guide you through the possibilities. Because the thing about veterinary specific attorneys is they have seen the messes and tried to clean them up. And they have the cautionary tales and say, okay, you want to make sure that you remember to do this. And as veterinarians, you're like, well, it would have never occurred to me that that could be a problem, but it's a problem. So having a wise counselor for all kinds of things makes all the difference in the world. If you are struggling with your team, having somebody come in who is a communication coach or having somebody who's a human resources expert come in or having somebody who is it can train medical skills. I mean, why not bring experts in to get the best training that you can rather than winging it? And we are a profession of people who will put some duct tape on something and go on. (laughs) I loved when we chatted before you shared a quote that I wrote down and like, I might have to swipe that, which is don't judge by our yardstick. I think I'm saying that correct. Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. I think I wrote it down correctly. But I would like for you to kind of explain the context of that. So this is not necessarily one of the questions, but I really love that quote. And I think it kind of fits a little bit into where we'll go with some of the other questions. Okay. Well, what I just like to say is it's very unfair to judge other people by our yardstick. And as someone who's been in veterinary medicine, you were grace and said 25 years, but actually it's 35 years because I started in 1985 as a part-time receptionist. I've seen over the years that Clients will come in and their animals will be ill and the team will get very judgmental. Like, how could you not see this? Why did you not know this? And the problem with that is that clients then feel judged and just human nature avoids people who are judging us as bad pet parents. Let's put it that way. And therefore, they're less receptive to the information that we're trying to share because they feel like they're being berated and belittled rather than trying to be helped. So when we go into situations and we realize that people don't know what we know, that's a really important thing. And we have it 
you know, logically we know it, but I'm talking about in concept. I mean, you're talking about really acknowledging that when you are in conversations with people who are basically ignorant about a subject that we are experts in. Dr. Nan Boss has a wonderful book and it's called uh, Educating Your Clients from A to Z. And one of the things that Nan mentioned in the very forward of the book was that 80% of our clients are medically ignorant. I took that to heart and I started asking questions of people who were in my classes. I said, how many of you have had a client come into your practice who doesn't know if their dog is male or female? A hundred percent of my classes, a hand raised and many times multiple hands raised up. Yeah, yeah, we've had that. So it occurred to me that if that is the level of ignorance our clients are bringing into our practice, that we really have to not judge them and really have conversations with them at a much more simple level than we think is necessary. Years and years ago, I took a class on how to write newsletters for the public and It said to write them at a fifth grade level. And my practice owner said, fifth grade, our clients are the heads of insurance companies and they're the lawyers. And one of them is even on the city council. I said, I understand that. But also remember that people are very busy. And so they're going to scan. And so you want them to be able to scan. But this is the same thing as when we're talking to clients in the exam room or training unskilled people in our hospital We really have to understand that we need to really, really, really keep it simple and basic and make good connections. One of my favorite stories is a veterinarian who was having a conversation with a client about a blocked cat. And rather than going into the whole thing about having stones and your lights and blocked your readers, he just said, have you ever had a clogged toilet in your house? And the client said, well, yeah, he said, same principle. This is what's wrong with your cat. It was brilliant. It was simple. It was descriptive. She got the whole picture and she said, oh, I get it. We got to fix that. There you go. But we try to make it too hard. Sometimes we try to teach people to be veterinarians and they don't want to be. (laughs) They just want the problem fixed. So there, it's just about judgment. It's just about not judging other people based on your knowledge base and being kind and having grace. I love that. And analogies of things that are easy. I oftentimes when I talk about investing, try to use the analogy around chocolate chip cookies. Again, I'm not clinically trained. So for me, like using the clinical analogies, I'm still trying to pick up things from folks, but yeah, I'll I'll use chocolate chip cookies. People understand the different ingredients and things come together. It's a lot easier than trying to explain all the technical terms because no one wants to understand that the same way. If I was bringing in my cat or dog and you told me it's a clogged toilet, I get that. Like, that's great. I love that. It made me smile and laughing. And yeah, that's the easiest way for it to get through. Because at the end of the day, it's communication. For people to say yes to something and want to move forward, clear communication of knowing exactly what the issue is. There you go. If they're confused, like, is this really important? Then it's going to lead them not to make that decision. It's the importance of storytelling. I, I can't emphasize enough the importance of storytelling in practice when it comes to client education. And I know communication is one of the big things that you stress, talk with with clients about. I had one of the questions from the Facebook group I want to tie it together, but it was one of the biggest mistakes to avoid for being a new owner. And then it was asked, was this a startup or a established clinic? And the question was a startup. So I think new startup issues that are maybe there. I want to wager, maybe it's communication, but I also don't want to lead that conversation that way. That's kind of where I would initially answer for that person, but I would love to hear your feedback there. 
Well, one of the things I have done in the past is help new owners lay the foundation for their hospital. And so there's so much to do. I mean, if you have a startup, you have a building, you've got to put equipment in it. There's a lot of money being spent. You've got to find your staff. But the very first thing to do is to understand why you walk in the door every day and really have your mission laid out and your core values, because those foundational elements to a practice help you hire people who believe what you believe and want to do what you do and share your purpose. We can ask questions that reveal people's belief structure. And when we have people who are all on board, all with a common mission and vision for the future, then everything else does fall into place. Obviously, you need to have a budget. You need to have a employee manual. You need to have job descriptions in place. And these things can be fluid, but you need to know at least where you're going to start to measure things. Because how will you know you've been successful? And I think one of the biggest mistakes I see with a lot of veterinary hospitals, not just the new startups, was that financially, they're not watching their profit and loss statements and their balance sheets every month. And I give this the equivalency going back to my storytelling is if you had a diabetic cat and you needed to test its blood levels, your glucose levels, and you decided to wait a year to do that, your cat is dead. You've got to check those frequently. And the same thing goes for your profit and loss statement. Are you making any money? What are the holes? What looks weird to you? If you're popping along here and your labor is running at about 20% and all of a sudden it's starting to jump up to 22 and 23%, you need to know why. That starts just to ask some questions. What is the reason for this? Well, If 90% of your team got the flu and everybody else had to work overtime to fill in for them, that's logical. It makes sense. This is what happened. But if there is no reason, then are people milking the clock? Have I got too much staff? There's adjustments that need to be made. The same thing for, I give talks on embezzlement. And we don't like to think that people would steal from us, but often embezzlement is a crime of opportunity. And when nobody is watching, People feel free to say, I deserve this. I worked very hard today, so I'm going to justify taking extra 20 bucks out of the cash drawer. And besides that, it never balances anyway, so nobody pays attention. And maybe nobody does. It might be weeks before anybody notices that there's this trend that every Friday, 20 bucks is missing, and maybe we need to figure out why that's happening. So it's about laying the groundwork for checks and balances. It's so much easier to do these things before you open and when you're new, then when you get into this a year, a year and a half, and all of a sudden you're up to your elbows and alligators and you're going, man, I I need manuals. There's now twice as many people as there were when we opened the door and I don't know how to manage all these people. So do the foundation work before you get into the weeds. And then when you're there, you've got the structure to build on it. And Again, it's going back to get wise counseling. Well, and I know you're a big fan, as a lot of people are, like checklists and making sure you have different things as you work all your way through. To me, building out that foundation is these are the things that, hey, I know you need this. Or someone could say, hey, we've done 10 of these or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. I know this is what you're going to need. This is what you need to work through. Until you get all this done, there's no need to kind of go through that next gate. Just stay here and finish this stuff up. So I think that's sage advice. 
Yes, yes. Start with your groundwork. And sometimes it seems superfluous because there might only be three people that start this practice. And you're like, there's only three of us. We know what's going on. Yeah, you do. Until you start to grow, all of a sudden you look around and there's 10. And the core people that started it know the reason that you're there. But the 10 got pulled into chaos and they maybe didn't get trained appropriately or we didn't tell them why we were there. We don't talk about our purpose and our mission a lot in most staff meetings. We talk about what people did wrong. I can remember one of my students, I said, do you have staff meetings? She said, yeah, they call us into the office, yell at us about what we did wrong and send us back out. I went, how helpful. (laughs) That's not what team meetings are for. So it's important that we do have good foundations for all businesses. Then you can grow it. Then it'll scale. Yeah. Just think about the culture of every time we're all together, we get yelled at or someone's in a bad mood and pissed off and cussing other people. Like, yeah, that's great for culture. We know exactly what it is when we get together versus saying, hey, take care of that stuff one-on-one and go to that person and communicate with it. And then maybe share like, hey, we've had this situation. You don't need to point it out specifically to, hey, it was Isaiah over here goofing up again, like right. whatever. Well, human beings are so naturally non-confrontational. We hate conflict. We hate to go do stuff like that. But giving feedback to somebody who's making a mistake is the only way they're ever going to get better. And if we manage from a sense of fairness and we say how unfair it is to expect somebody to read our mind and know what they're supposed to do at work or know when we're unhappy with their work if we never give them any kind of feedback. Instead, what we'll do is we'll bring 15 people into a room and complain that this was not done appropriately. Well, 14 of those people are doing it right. And they're going, that's not me. I don't know why I'm having to listen to this. So we tried to do it that way rather than sucking it up, putting on our big girl panties and going and having a good conversation with people. That being said, Let's learn the skills that it takes to have these conversations rather than having them be this accusatory diatribe that says you always do this and you never do that. Let's ask some questions and say, how is it that you don't understand how to do this service or what can I do to teach you to do this correctly? Or are you having trouble doing this? So let's start to ask some questions rather than send out some accusations. Totally. Again, we're going to kind of bounce around just because there's different questions. There's two that are similar and I'm going to save them for the end because it's kind of a vision for the future. But there's one question here that was asking around, I know that she's a mobile practitioner right now, but she was kind of asking around mobile practices, but also different slash unusual practice models that maybe you've seen over the course of time and those that have been successful or those that have completely been belly up failures. <laughs> so maybe let's focus on the positives of that side, because I saw in a CE event the other day, someone talking about when to start their own business and they left it at the end saying, well, if it completely fails, and I was like, well, you should plan per what you just said a little bit ago. If there's only three of you right now, plan for it to be successful. Don't be surprised. Don't go into it thinking, well, it might fit. like have some confidence that you could do this, right? Like, <laughs> exactly. don't, be, don't be thinking that it's already going to fail before you start. That's not a great way. That's not really a great way. And, and people will pick up on that vibe too. And so it'll be really hard for people to support you in a message that you only care partially about. But as far as different practice models, I've seen practices that were vaccine, kind of just the basics clinics, and they work. 
I've seen the bells and whistles practice and they work. I've seen mobile practices that do well. There's even a practice, and this is a model that happens in cities because you have to have a population density in order for it to work. But these are practices that go into high rises and into office buildings. And they will have a certain day of a week where they are contracted to come into these practice offices and people bring their pets and they vaccinate and draw blood and kind of do some routine stuff for those pets with the convenience of the people never having to leave work. Now, since we have work from home hybrid, maybe that practice is less successful. And it certainly, I'm sure it was damaged if there was in a city that had quarantines and people didn't even come to the office. So there's risk with every type of practice. There's always the risk of new competition moving in. There's always the risk of a major industry moving out of your town and an, an outflux of clients. So with business, there's risk, but with no risk, there's no reward. You're the financial guy, right? If you don't try to take a risk, at least some risk, and the risk is weighted, then you're never going to be successful. You got to risk failure. And then you just learn from it and you tweak it and you do it again, but you do it better the next time. Absolutely. And again, the demand for veterinary medicine and veterinarians specifically, the job openings right now. One of the questions was on the opinions on the shortage of vet professionals. Mm-hmm. If you have any thoughts there, would love to hear it. But I heard a stat, it was what, 12 and a half veterinarians per every one opening, something like it, that. It's increased. I mean, yeah. I, I have friends who are recruiters and they were quoting seven. About six months ago, it was five. It's a phenomenon. It's really happening, but it's been coming because in 2008, when we had the Great Recession, veterinarians couldn't find jobs. People were actually pulling back and our profession who is basically being considered recession proof from the dawn of time was really feeling some pain because people just did not have the money. And in fact, I was running the ER hospital at that time. And it's a general practice during the day, turned to ER at 6 p.m. and from 6 to 8 o'clock. And what we started noticing in that practice was people were not coming for routine care. They were delaying that. Then their animals were getting sick and we were end up seeing them on emergencies. So we're seeing three days sicker than we had been before because they were delaying it, hoping people, hoping the animals would get well. And we were also seeing more emergency cases than we had seen prior because they were delaying care and then they were really, really sick. So we're seeing that. So the AVMA kind of said at that time, we have too many veterinarians and they didn't really do much about expanding vet schools. It was really kind of hard for colleges who were interested in having another veterinary school to say, hey, can can we have one? Because there's not very many. Compared to medical schools, it's a very small amount of veterinary schools. And so then you have a generation who has determined that animals are really important in their lives. Millennial generations, very, very attached to their pets. And many of them actually delay having children or they can't afford to have children, so they'll have a pet but they take good care of the pets. The demand changed. So looking back, because I have kind of the long-term 35-year perspective here. So the animal's place in the home has dramatically changed from when I started. In 1985, there was a practicality. People said, okay, it costs too much. I'll just put them to sleep. I'm not saying that all clients were like that, but there was much more of that than there is now. But there was also less that we could do. I laughed and told somebody one day, I think all I did was count steroids because we didn't have any flea products except flea sprays and 
the Flarebits was the monthly pill that we used to give for heartworm preventive. And all we talked about was hot spots and blocked cats and abscesses because the cats were all outside fighting and they would come in with these monstrous abscesses. But then when the monthly flea products came, people started bringing those animals in the house. And once they got them in the house, they decided they really, really liked them a lot. And they moved from the porch to the den. And they moved from the den to the bedroom. And they moved from the bedroom floor to the bed. And now they have their own strollers, their own wardrobe. And so it, whatever this animal, and the bark box comes to them, you know, so they get a present all the time. So the animal's place change in the home. That made veterinarians busier. It made them take longer for appointments. If you figure that all you were doing before was giving an injection for the most part and sewing up animals that have been in fights, that doesn't take very long. But now it takes a long time to do things like MRIs and digital radiograph studies and dental cleanings because those things take an hour or more. So the expanded services caused us to have to do more work and churn less business through. I mean, not money-wise, but animal-wise, because we couldn't see as many. All right, so that happened. Well, then the other thing that was not really forecast was baby boomers of my generation are insane, and they will work 50, 60-hour work weeks. And then we have uh, Gen X and the millennials, they're going, you people are nuts. We're going to work a 30-hour work week or a 32-hour work week. So it's really taking almost twice the number of veterinarians to fill in the work-obsessed baby boomer retirees. That's the other thing that happened. And we have a lot of veterinary hospitals now. We just expanded the demand. The population has grown. Uh, The population of pets has grown. And of course, during the pandemic, everybody was staying at home, staring at their animal. And instead of what we used to get, which was, oh, he needs that. Well, maybe I'll put that off until next month. Since they weren't spending any money on clothes or Starbucks or gas, they went, well, yeah, go ahead and do it because they were still getting paid the same amount of money working from home. So now the veterinary teams are swamped with the yeses. That was unusual. And so it was just this kind of perfect storm of things that happened. And we're shorthanded because we have people who are immune compromised. We have people who don't have any child care because schools close. So there's a lot of other things that played into it. You know, I'm glad to see that new veterinary schools are opening up. I hope that we get a couple of more because I don't see this subsiding anytime soon. I think that people are still going to love their animals. I've spent a lifetime educating people about what they need to do to take good care of their pets. And I think it's sinking in. I really do. Yeah. And I guess there's too many questions for the time that we have, but I'll wrap up with combining two of them together. So one was, where do you see the profession in 15 years? And the other one is on the same vein of what is your ultimate unbiased vision for the industry and why, which I kind of like both of those Hmm. together. So as candid as you want to be about what you see the future. Cause I think the point that you just said that you don't necessarily see it slowing down. I agree with you on that. And there's a quote from, I think it's Oliver Goudet from JB Holdings that owns NVA and Compassion First. That's talked about veterinary medicine is in the first 10 years of a 50 year kind of golden era of veterinary medicine. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. I tell so many young veterinarians, there's so much opportunity in front of you. I know sometimes they get the, Hey, you have all the student loan debt and it's this woe is me. Like it's awful. There's, 
fantastic opportunities out there. There and is. There will be. There will continue to be. So with that, well, your vision, unfiltered, yeah. candid. <laughs> okay. So my unfiltered vision is that veterinary schools will do two things better than they do today. That they will teach a communication class to animal people because people go into the animal health business because they like animals better than humans for the most part. And they get into veterinary medicine with the unrealistic expectation that people are just going to say yes to whatever it is. And they haven't got the communication skills to overcome the pushback or to understand their own emotional reactions to people pushing back. So I think that focus highly on communication skills and focusing highly on leveraging. I had a conversation with a veterinarian about an hour ago, actually, and we talked about the fact that veterinary schools teach veterinarians to be hands-on. And that's fine because they do need to know the skills, but they don't teach them how to leverage technical team members because they don't have sufficient team members to be leveraged. And there's a financial catch-22 here. So I have free labor in veterinary students who can do husbandry for animals. But that being said, they're not learning how to share the workload. So I think we're going to be forced to leverage people better. And veterinary technicians are going to be happier too, because they went to school, they invested in their education, and they did not come out to be dog holders. They want to do the work they were trained to do. And veterinarians can be much more effective, much more efficient when they are not expressing anal glands and cleaning ears. That's not what they are supposed to do. And so sometimes I see a hospital say, oh, we need more veterinarians. You really need to use the techs that you have and you need a couple more techs and you really don't need any more veterinarians. So I think that maybe schools will start to teach leveraging better. I think we're going to have to use technology. That's the other thing. I'm a big fan of technology, especially for communication with clients. I think that things like apps and telemedicine and phone systems, even appointment schedulers. I mean, there's so many little mundane things that our staff is tied up doing that can be done through technology. Then we can take the good team members that we have, we can pay them better, and we can leverage them more to handle the things that only humans can handle. So there's my 10-second vision of the future that ran long. (laughs) No, that's perfect. I love it. I agree with everything that you said. And again, your history in the profession to be able to see like the changes. I thought that portion of just going from the porch to the den, to the bedroom, to the pillow, right? I love that kind of walking through the history of where we've been. I will save some other questions maybe for another time that we connect. I appreciate it. For those that are listening, want to know a little bit more about you, want to connect with you, where would you send them? Where would you encourage them to follow you? Well, the easiest thing is just to go to my website. It's www dot d boone the number two manage vets don't forget the s dot com and on that website is my blog there's contact sheets how to get in touch with me there's free stuff that I give away some of my lists my favorite lists are on that and a little bit of my history and what I do and about the consulting process so if anybody has any questions about that I would send them right to my website. Perfect. I will link to that. Debbie thank you so much for your time today. You're quite welcome. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it.
Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review that'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.